So I'm going to be talking about this topic called Lost and Found, and within that, I'm going to be talking about a young individual who perhaps lost his way a little bit. He lost his way a little bit. He took a kind of a wayward path. (laughs) And even in the process of his kind of rebellion and his desire to kind of do his own thing, he was actually swallowed up by a sea monster, by a big, big sea creature. He was swallowed whole, and he was chilling in the belly of the sea monster. Who am I talking about? Who am I talking? Wait, everyone at once. Really? You guys are good. I, I, that's not Jonah. I don't know. You guys are good. I, I was trying to trick you guys to see if you're awake, at least, because if you guys are sleeping, I'm not going to know what's going to be happening. So please, stay awake. We're going to have a good time. So we're going to be talking about Jonah, contrary to what that is saying. Um, and because we're talking about Jonah, I wanted to look through the book of Jonah to talk about it. So just a little bit of background before we get full into it. Um, if you guys don't know, Jonah was an Israelite prophet. Um, and he was called by God. You learn this within the first, like, five verses, so I'm not giving you guys too much of the story, but he was called by God to go to Nineveh, which was, as Paola even mentioned, it was the metropolitan capital of the Assyrian Empire. You guys know about the Assyrian Empire? You guys remember history? A little bit? Like, I remember this, like, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade history, and you learned about them, you learned about them a little bit in the Bible, Um, But these people, actually, the Assyrians, um, they were one of the most aggressive, violent, pagan, unruly, like all types of debauchery happening up in this empire. I I didn't even want to show the images because I know that some of the kids like staying, but there's like ancient art of what the Assyrians would do. Like they would come into the land and you know how like Alexander the Great, like when he would conquer places, like he would kind of immerse the Greek culture into the old culture. So that's why even when he conquered, a little bit of history, no? When he conquered the place of Israel, like the land of Israel, that's why they write in Greek in the New Testament, because Alexander the Great conquered them, but they still have their culture. So that's what Alexander the Great did, that he, he immersed Greek culture with the culture that was already domestic at this point, but not the Assyrians. They were pretty forceful and dominating their culture, they wanted their ways, and if you disagreed, they cut your head off, they cut off every, every leader's head, they impaled people, and they put them right in the town center to say, this is what your old leader looks like now, I'm your new leader. These, these are the Assyrians. So I, I want you guys to get a bit of a picture of what's happening when God says, go to Nineveh. And this is the capital. This is the hub and the center of all of this evil, of all of this debauchery, of all of this nonsense, if you will. And God calls him to go there. So we're going to start, we're going to start on Jonah 1. If you guys have your Bibles, please read along, because we're actually going to be going through much of the book of Jonah today. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, and it said, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come before me. Verse 3, But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So Jonah fled. So God's saying, go up to Nineveh and preach and prophesy. And so I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a map right here. This is good. So that's Joppa. He was a little bit, so he's from, he's a prophet from Gath Hefer, which is actually in a bit, a little bit of the region of Galilee. If you guys know a little bit about Middle Eastern geography, um, you guys know also who came from Galilee, right? 
Jesus, there we go. Jesus came from Galilee. If, if you guys don't know much about the Bible, you guys are going to learn today. All right, so he's from Gath Heifer, which is in the Galilean region, and he goes down a little bit to Joppa. So he's 550 miles from Joppa to Nineveh. I would say it's about 500 miles from Gath Heifer to Nineveh. So he's not that far. I mean, 500 miles, I mean, I know we think today, like, that's half-hour plane right away. But there, it's, it's not too bad when you think about where he's actually going to go. So instead of going to Nineveh and prophesying to them and preaching to them, he actually goes down to Joppa, and he doesn't just, just start a new life up in Joppa. Or he doesn't just like, oh, Lord, I don't know. I don't know. I've, I've done some prophecies because, you know, he's a prophet, so he's been prophesying. He's been prophesying to kings. That's what prophets did, and he was part of the Israelite kingdom, so he's prophesying to kings like Jeroboam the second and whatnot. So he doesn't just say like, no, Lord, I'm not, I'm not going to choose to preach that one today. I'm going to ignore that one and wait for the next one that you have. Some of us do that, you know, like, oh, Lord, I don't know if I should speak to that person. I don't know if I should pray for that person. I'll wait for the next one. The next one's got to be easier. Come on, Lord, you got to give me an easier one because you know I'm not there yet. So he called him to go to Nineveh. He doesn't just ignore it. He tries to sail 2,500 miles to a completely different region. You guys know that's Spain. That's the, not even the, e the, the eastern coast, the western coast of Spain in Tarshish. He went as far away. There's really nowhere else he can go in terms of west. He, he went as far away from his homeland, from his people, from his culture, from his language as possible because he was so afraid he was so afraid that, because he had a real understanding of, like, God, and it's like, when the Lord says something, and it's like, ah, I don't know, Lord, but that's too hard. That's way too hard. And so instead of just ignoring him or doing it, he tries to sail halfway across the entire continent to run away from him. So we're going to fast forward really quick to, to verse 17, a little bit what happens in between then. Um, he sails the ship, and the ship starts having some issues in the Mediterranean Sea, some storms start happening, some waves start crashing, and it's just all anarchy up in that ship. And so there, there's like a bunch of, it's, it's a really cool scene, actually. I think you should make a movie about it or a comedy little scene about it. There's like a bunch of people on that ship, and they're freaking out because they're, they're about to die. There's really, there's no Coast Guard at this time for their ships. So he, they're trying to throw cargo out, and Jonah's in the middle sleeping. He's, he's at the bottom of the ship saying, they're throwing cargo out. They're, they're getting on their knees and praying to all of their gods because they're all from different cultures because this is a ship and they go from port to port. So they're all praying to their different gods. And then they're like, okay, nothing's happening. Nothing's working. Let's cast lots. Let's cast lots to see who is responsible for this. And you know, casting lots basically just like modern day, like rolling the dice. It's like, we're going to roll the dice. Six is Jonah. Five is me. Four is you. We're going to see who's responsible for this. And so the six, they land on the six, if you will. It gets to Jonah. They wake him up. Like, hey, like, what's happening? Like, what are you doing? Because they knew that he had actually fled from the Lord. He told them for some reason. It says that in scripture. And so he, they're like, what, what's happening? What are you doing? Like, who are you? He's like, I'm a Hebrew. And it doesn't say this in scripture, but I assume he was just like, I'm a Hebrew and I'm a prophet. I speak on behalf of the Lord. And they're like, what are you doing? What is wrong with you? You speak on behalf of the Lord and you're telling us that you fled from the Lord? You're the voice because you know that in the Old Testament they were the voice of God. That they didn't have scriptures like we have them today. They had some scrolls and stuff but only the elite could really read it. So they were the voice of God. When God wanted to speak to the nation, they would speak through the prophets. 
And, and they understand this. They know this. They know that at that time, the prophet was the voice of the God that they were worshiping. So like, what are you doing? You were called and, and beholded to be this voice of this God. And you're telling me what? And he's like, oh yeah. And I'm, I worship the God that created the sea and the land and everything in it. He's like, what are you doing? You're telling me that you're the voice of this God that created everything and you're running away from him? No wonder we're cursed. No wonder we're going to sink on this ship because he controls these waves. He controls the land. He controls us. He controls this whole thing. He's got the whole world in his hands. <laughs> so they're freaking out. They're freaking out. So we're going to go to Jonah 1:17. This is the climate of what's happening. And so they, they throw him overboard because Jonah's like, all right, I'll die a martyr. I know it's my fault. I'm not going to have you guys die too. So they go to se- verse 17, chapter 1. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. <laughs> I'm going to go a little bit into what that looks like in a second. But we're going to continue. And from the inside of the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord. And he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas. And the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. And I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again to your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever, but you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. So he's praying this, right? Which is very similar, if you guys know this, this is after the life of David. These are very similar to the Psalms. As you know, like the prophets, like they know the word. So he'd have known this. He'd have probably relied on some of these psalms, and this was kind of his anger for that. Because this is very similar to the psalms. I don't know if you guys know, but in Acts 2, when Peter quotes about the prophecy about not, not letting his holy one rot in the grave, like he's coming from this point. Like, Lord, you won't let your servant rot. Like, I know you won't. He's, he's, he's prophesying. He's praying to, the, to God, but he's even prophesying, giving a little bit of a picture of what resurrection looks like. Because if you guys, encourage you guys to read through this throughout the week. Read through that prayer and pray it. Like, and think and, and reflect and meditate on your circumstances. Reflect on where God has taken you from. Because I know a lot of times, the farther we get away from events, the smaller they look. But the closer we get to upcoming events, the bigger they look. Right? That's just how perspective is. And so it gets huge and huge and huge and we're in it. And it seems like nothing else is going to be happening. It seems like we're in the middle of this storm, we're in the middle of this stuff, and nothing's going to change. But I want to encourage you to read this, verses 1 through 6, the six verses. I want to encourage you to read it and reflect on how, where God has taken you from, and have faith that God will take you from where you are to where he's calling you to be. And even if circumstances don't look any different in this life, he's already promised us that they will in the next he hasn't promised us that every single thing is going to be okay for the rest of our lives. Because even if he, if he redeems this situation, it's going to be something else that we walk into. It's just how it happens. Those of you who have been walking with the Lord and perhaps just doing life, you can relate to that and attest to that. That even when God frees you from something, you walk into something else. You got seaweed wrapped around your head again. But so, a little bit about this climate. Jonah is praying to the Lord, his God. And I want you to think about like rotten fish rotten fish, like three, four, five day old, not even refrigerated, just rotten fish. I don't know if any of you guys have experienced that, have smelled that, have felt that. I worked in a seafood department for a whole year, 
you get a lot of that. You start to smell like it. <laughs> they, they, my parents would come pick me up from work, and they'd be like, ooh, you need a shower, like, immediately. It's bad. Like, fish is bad. So imagine the stomach of this fish that eats other fish, and it's warm because it's got blood. It's warm, and it's just got rotting fish carcass all up in this. And it's pitch black, by the way. There's not like a light. He didn't have a flashlight. He didn't have an iPhone at this point. He doesn't have like these different apps where he can like, oh, Lord, give me a scripture. Google encouraging scripture in the belly of the fish. And it's not metaphorical. He's in this disgusting grave if you, because he thinks he's going to die. He has a real expectation that he is going to die in this belly. And I imagine he's surviving for three days. So I imagine he's probably not eating. But maybe like just, he's like drinking. The li- uh, I'm gonna stop, I'm gonna stop, I'm sorry. So in the context of all this, he can say to God, like, you have rescued me. Even if I'm not free from the belly of this fish, he has no idea what's gonna happen. He's like, you rescued me. So what is he talking about if he's still in the belly and he's saying, you rescued me? He, he has something that he doesn't even behold like in, in Hebrews, it says that, that the prophets, they, they prophesied and they, and they spoke and they, and they looked so forward to something and they didn't even get to behold it and touch it. And, but, but we have, because we understand that now, that now that we've seen and experienced it, that it's Jesus and that he died and resurrected. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. But he's, he has this hope of salvation and of freedom even when he's in the middle of this fish stomach. So a little bit of if you guys can relate to that. Maybe not literally, but figuratively. So we're going to go, we're going to skip on. That, that's Jonah 1, and then that was actually Jonah 2, 1 through 6. We're going to skip on to Jonah 3. He gets freed from the fish. The, the fish spits him back out, and he's back into the ocean. He actually makes his way to land, and then this is what the Lord says, right? This is good. Jonah 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it, and proclaim, proclaim to it the message I give you. Okay. So he's like, I just went through all that. I'm expecting like new seasons, Lord. Like come and give me something new. Like you saved me for a reason. You guys know that God doesn't just save you just so you can keep on living, but that he saves you for a reason. So Jonah, it's a side note. Jonah saved, got saved. And it's for a He's like, I know that I have a purpose in this life. I know that he did, he saved me from the belly. So what's, what, what's next, God? You gonna, you gonna tell me to speak to the king? You can tell me to speak to, to Israel, to tell them to repent, to tell them to get their act together. <laughs> Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave to you before. Do it, do it again. You guys, are, you guys can relate to that. Like you fled from something or you thought you could escape something and then God just brings it back up again sometime later. N- hands up if you can relate to that. You think, oh, like, Lord, I thought I escaped that. I didn't really learn my lesson, but I'm good to go, right? I'm good to go for the rest of my life. He's like, ah. But, but your heart's still in this place, so we still got to deal with that. And I still want to use you for a purpose. So that brings me to my first point that, and if you guys are, t- please take notes, or if you don't have notes, you got a phone, so take notes in your phone, and just, I, I really want you guys to, like, reflect on these points that I'm going to be talking about throughout the week. So write this down, take a picture of it, write it in your phone. God's mission on earth is to find the lost. And he uses previously lost people to do so. And this is beautiful. This is earth-breaking. This is groundbreaking. This is what separates 
most of the religions. Like this idea that, yeah, like you were lost. And you're still lost. Like you still have moments. But he's calling you to go to those lost people. That for some reason, though you are lost in that moment, that he is preparing you and giving you experience and giving you tools and gifts and, and equipping you with skills to actually go and reach those same lost people even though you were lost. It's incredible. I know why a lot of non-believers can say, oh, that's pretty hypocritical. It's pretty hypocritical because you were lost too. Like, I remember doing that with you. I remember getting into that nonsense with you. Why are you trying to preach to me now? It's like, no, like, yeah, I, we, we did that together. You can attest to that. But God has freed me. I've been found. I'm no longer lost. And God can free you too. That's the gospel, that he doesn't just use perfect, cookie-cutter, nice people to reach the lost. He uses us. I know a lot of you may be thinking like, oh, but, but you don't know what I did on Friday night. You don't know what I did on Saturday night. You don't know where I went on Black Friday. It's like, That's okay. It's okay. God knows, and he's still calling you to something great. God knows, and he's still calling you to go to the lost. So I just want to remind you of that, that there is no Christian in this building that has never once been lost, that has never not been lost before. That we've all been in this boat. We've all been in this place but we're not sure what's happening, and we're, we're running from God for sure, and God has used us mightily throughout our lives. So I want to encourage you with that. Um, and that just reminds me of, of Luke 15. That's like, that's the gospel. Like, that his mission is to find the lost, that he has such a love for lost people. I know what you're thinking, but like, Lord, they're really evil. They're really evil, or they're really weird. They're awkward. I don't like them. They're not nice to me. They don't give me a hug and a kiss on the cheek every day. They kind of talk to me and it's kind of abrasive. And it's kind of blunt and <sighs> I don't like that. I'm not cool with that. Lord, I need you to, to, to not just heal me and, and fix my heart, but can you just remove them? I, I don't really want to be a part of them. But God's mission is to find lost people. And he's called you to go and do it. And I think it's a beautiful picture of Luke 15. I want to encourage you guys. I may not have enough time, but I want to encourage you guys to read Luke 15, like the entire chapter, because it, it's this picture of he's, Jesus is dwelling and eating, hanging out with tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, the most deplorable people of their time. And he's hanging out with them, chilling with them, loving on them, caring for them. And the Pharisees, the religious folk, they're like, hey, what, what, what are you doing over there? Why, why are you hanging out with them? They're not righteous. They're not good. They don't follow these rules like we do. Come on, Rabbi, you should know better. And he gives them these three stories of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost, the prodigal son. You guys know it that way. I call it the lost son. And so just want to encourage you to read that throughout the week, and that'll give you a good picture of what Jesus is trying to do in this earth. And it may look a little bit different than what your paradigm fits for now, but I want you to pray and allow God to extend your paradigm, to extend your mind, to extend your spirit and give you a greater heart. You can say, Lord, I don't have the capacity to love these people. God will give you that capacity. It's only his capacity that can fill your capacity that can actually make you so audacious to love people like that. Because God, for some reason, if you can look at your history, he gave other people capacity to love you. He gave other, when you were, when your deeds were ugly and when you weren't pretty and even when you were a baby, it's this picture that like, I'm helpless and I benefit nobody in no way other than being cute maybe. But God gave people capacity to love you. 
So reflect on that and ask God to give you the capacity to love others. So we're going to skip on to Jonah 3. We just did Jonah 3, 1 through 2. So he just said, so go to Nineveh and preach to them what I gave to you. Come on, let's get this started. I know we took a detour, but let's go. Let's get this started. Jonah 3, verse 3. He says, and so Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. So he's, he's got it. Comes back. He's got it. He's back. He's in Nineveh. He's in the capital of the Assyrian Empire. He went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. This is the king, one of the most grotesque and violent empires. All right? By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. In verse 10, this is what, if you, excuse me for a little, this is what pissed off Jonah, and this is what pissed off a lot of us sometimes when God does this. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Really made Jonah mad. Like, really, really irked him. It's like, Ugh. I know some of you are thinking, like, but, but Lord, like, that's not just. They've killed so many people. They've gone raiding towns, pillaging, killing kids, killing mothers. This king is probably in all types of debauchery. He probably just left some crazy party and went into, and went into this thing and did this. Lord, where is the justice? Where is the, the peace? Where, where is your power coming through? I want to remind you guys that that justice, that condemnation that we feel we de- that the sinners deserve, that the unrighteous deserve, that the people that don't, that was laid on Jesus on the cross. All that condemnation, all that anger, the anger of the Lord. You guys see the signs with people like, the anger of the Lord is upon us. That was all laid on Jesus. And God, being outside of time, relented on the Ninevites so that they may experience him, so that they may know him, that they may love him. I know a lot of times it's hard to see that. It's so hard to forgive people. It's so hard to love people, even when they've wronged you. You're like, but, but Nick, <laughs> but Nick, you don't know what they did. You don't know how bad they hurt me, how bad they hurt my family, how bad they hurt my people. So yeah, like God knows. And he experienced it all on his shoulders. And he took that cross and he died the most violent, criminal way, humiliating way that they could figure it out. And he took upon all of that. And as he's on that cross, bleeding out, have been flogged, have been beaten, punched. Praise the Lord, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. They can't even fathom what they're trying to do to me right now. But you, Lord, are using it to redeem mankind. That without Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, this doesn't happen. 
Without Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, none of us are here proclaiming God's glory. We're here proclaiming God's glory. Because you guys know that like whatever side you're on, God's glory can either be amazing or terrifying. But we thank Jesus and we don't forget where we came from, that though we were once far from God and though we were once disobedient to God, that by the death of Jesus on the cross, he called us into fellowship with him. And so this is the gospel. Like the Ninevites, the entire city starts repenting, like, Lord, come heal our land, come heal our people. Like, we don't even want the, the animals to eat anything. We don't even want to profit from their, their growing. But Lord, we just want to, we just want to relent. We just want to allow you to do your thing. Not even knowing that he's not going to destroy them. They're like, we're just going to do it, and who knows? Maybe the Lord will free us. Maybe. And God in his mercy does it. And so this brings me to my second point, which you guys can write down and take a picture of. The lost get found when the found find the lost. That might sound like, like, blah, 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 blah. The lost get found when the found find the lost. Like a tongue twister or something. But the lost get found when the found find the lost. So though you were previously lost, God somehow in his mercy, in his love, in his grace, it's like, I'm going to use you, and, and I'm gonna u- this is going to be my method to go reach the lost. A lot, of, a lot of you sometimes think like, well, Lord, why can't you just come down on the clouds and just approach my uncle or approach my brother or approach my father, my mother, like these different things, and just, and just reveal your glory to them, and then they'll repent, and then they'll change. But he's like, no, like, I already came down. And you know what I came down as? I became a man. I became a man. I became the son of man so that it wouldn't look too much different when you actually approach someone as a man or as a woman and you come and show my glory. That's, that's the beauty of, of God in flesh, that he was showing a model, a prototype of what it would look like when God comes to dwell with man and it looks like something beautiful. That's why you can't get rid of the God in Jesus or the man in Jesus. He was both perfectly synchronized walking with the Father, yet being a man. And so then after he resurrects, he sends his spirit. He says, now it's going to be this God and man, that in Romans 8 it says that his spirit joins with our spirit, and you can't even, there's no seams to it. It's just been joined together. You can't separate one from the other. That's why when people sometimes say, Denver would always tell me this all the time, he'd be like, I get really uncomfortable when when people say, the Lord says, because God abolished that he came to dwell within you so that when you would speak, the Lord would speak. That's why you guys know when you insult somebody or you say something really upsetting that you are the voice of the Lord. That James says in his letter that you have the power to kill or to give life. You guys know that that ideally only God has the power to take life and give it, but now he says, I've given it to you. So that there's real power in your words. There's real power when you talk to somebody. There's real power when somebody really makes you mad on the highway or makes you mad at work or makes you mad in your home. Like, there's real power in what you're about to say to them. It really is. You guys can remember. You guys can all attest, I imagine, to things that people have said to you years ago that they don't even remember. And you remember, like, man, that really hurt me, and I'm damaged because of it. I'm damaged, and I, I really can't get past it. It's like, because, yeah, because God made it that way, that your words had the power to heal or to destroy. So the lost get found when the found find the lost. And that just reminds me of Matthew 28. You guys know the Great Commission? 
So Jesus came to them. This is verse 18, Matthew 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, which is interesting because it's like, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, you go and you make disciples of all nations and you baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and then the Holy Spirit and you teach them to obey everything I've commanded commanded you and surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. And what did he command us? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Teach them what I've commanded you. That's the commands. Love God and love people. That's the mission. That's the aim. That's what God has called us to. That's all. That's it. I know a lot of times we get wrapped up in, in a lot of Christianese, and we read way too many books for our own good. Like, we read all these, like, really fringe doctrinal things that we really want to get to know about, but it's like, man, you've missed it. Like, these only matter when you're doing this. Like, that fringe doctrinal stuff, like, you want to talk about all the, all the stuff that it's been years looking at? Like, if you don't have love God and love people, this means nothing. Like, if you don't love God and love people, you know that the gifts of the Holy Spirit means nothing? If you don't love God and love people, you know that your words and, and your preaching and your, your Bible thumping, Bible thumping, <laughs> means nothing. That it's all in the context of loving God and loving people. I love that Jesus knew the scriptures better than any Pharisee. <laughs> but he didn't quote them to prostitutes. And he didn't quote them to tax collectors. He was the word. Uh, he, that the word was with God and it was God. He dwelled with the Father forever and the Spirit, looking like this beautiful three-in-one, and then he becomes flesh, that he already has it. He's, it's in him. And then you see him quote Scripture to who? The Pharisees, because that's the only language they speak. They're like, well, we don't know what else to say to you because we just have the Word. But they had the Word, and they had all the knowledge, and they had everything, but they didn't have love God, love people. Because you can say, oh, maybe they loved God, but you don't really love God fully until you start to love people. And you can't really love people fully until you start to love God. It's this cyclical thing. It's beautiful. And it's like, oh, actually when you get to love God more and more and more, you see that it doesn't actually keep you in your own homes, on your own, just me and the Lord, me and the Lord, me and the Lord. When you actually begin to love God more, it calls you to love people more. It beckons you to love people more. You can't do anything but to love people more because you're like, you come to realize who this God is. And then once you realize who this God is and you actually read these scriptures with an open mind and not just to fulfill whatever agenda you have, you see, all, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples and preach to them what I've commanded to you. Love God and love people. All right, I want to move on. <laughs> so we're going to go, we're going to continue to talk about uh, through the book of Matthew. And I wanted to give you guys a little bit of a, of a, like a, going this way. So Jonah was about several hundred years before Jesus. And Jesus comes around, and we're going to go to Matthew 12, verse 38. And so then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Show us something, teacher. You proclaim all these things, you say all these nice things, but basically show me, show me the money. And so he answered, a wicked an adulterous na- generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Him. That this is what Jonah was pointing to. That this is a picture, like Jonah's whole book. It's, it's four chapters. I really encourage you guys. I know I'm giving you guys a lot to read, but it's good. You guys can maybe watch one less episode of Netflix. <laughs> Just go through Jonah. It takes like 20 minutes to read through the four chapters of Jonah and read about it. And then be like, man, like how does this point to Jesus? How does this point to God? Because he says, the only sign I will give you is Jonah. And he goes to explain it a little bit by saying that the three days, three nights thing. So he's giving a, like, a little bit of a prophecy into what's going to happen. But then I think a little bit when I read it that it's perhaps something a little bit greater too. That Jesus is saying something perhaps between the lines. That it's like, you Pharisees, like you know Jonah. Like you've read about him. You know his prophecies. You know his story. Like, and I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. And so as I, as I said a little bit before, that Jesus was the representative for all the the wickedness of man on that cross. That, that as, in, as Paul says, that, that as one died, as Jesus died, so all died. So that one died for all. You guys get that? That sounded like, kind of like tongue twister again. Like, as, as one died, Jesus, so all died, so that one died for all. And all that just means is that when Jesus dies on that cross, when Jesus takes all that affliction and all that wrath and all that pain and all that suffering, that it was in place of all of us. And that it was as a representative of all of us. And so then when someone like Jonah rebels, or someone like the Ninevites rebels, we know that it won't be the end. That Jesus was the representative rebellion of God, the rebellion, the, which rebellion just means to be separate from God, to be away from God, to run away from God, that he was that picture of that, and that he died, but he resurrected. He didn't just die, but that he resurrected, and this goes a little bit deeper, so that he was that representative punishment, and he said he paid for it, and then he comes back from the grave, and he represents God's redemption in the earth. That he died as a, are you guys following me a little bit? I'm, I'm seeing some confused faces. He died as the representative of all mankind, and he rose and resurrected as a representative of the redemption of all mankind. That he took all the sin, and he beat it, he defeated it, he took it all, and he made way with it. That's what, that's what to forgive means in Greek. It means to completely separate. You guys know that psalm that like from the east to the west is the sin. So he completely, like, that's what it means, like, when it says, like, that God forgives you in the New Testament. It means that he took all of that and threw it all away, took it as far away as possible. The word's called a thesis in Greek. Um, and so this is what it looks like, that though Jonah rebelled, that though he ran from God and was kind of seen as unworthy at that point because he completely disobeyed God, that God redeemed him, that God gave him redemption, and he didn't just give him redemption, but that he now gave him a mission. And that's what it looks like for us as humans, that we've been redeemed by God, we rebelled against God, but he redeemed us, and now he gave us a mission. And so I think he gives that picture too through the prophet of Jonah. And so then we're going to go back to Jonah 1, 1 through 3. I want to give a little bit of context so that you guys can remember what I'm about to say. We're going to go to verse, or chapter 1, and then we're going to go to Jonah 4. So Jonah 1, 1 through 3. You guys can go to Jonah 4 if you want. I'm just going to read this real quick. Um, so the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, 
Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to, free, to flee from the Lord. And so, you guys know what I just explained, that he just fled from the Lord. And then he actually eventually goes to Nineveh. He preaches it. They all repent. They all come. They're like, Lord, yes, like have your way in us. We repent. We're sorry. We don't want to do this anymore. And Jonah 4.1, Jonah sees all this. He sees that he was used more powerfully than he could ever even imagine. That he was just like, I imagine he doesn't even do it with like that much emphasis. He's just walking around Nineveh just like, repent. Like, the Lord's coming. Repent. The Lord's coming. Like kind of begrudgingly. <laughs> but then they all actually repent, repent. And he's upset about it. Like he's actually livid that they repent, that they come to know the Lord. I don't know if you guys have ever been in that place. Hopefully not. Hopefully you guys are like, yeah, like the Lord loves you, like he cares for you, like, oh, you actually repented. Okay, and I don't know what to do with you anymore. <laughs> so we go to Jonah 4, verse 1. Um, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. <laughs> he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home in Gathepher? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I know that you are a gracious, gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. What a response. Like, ah, uh, I knew you were so good, Lord. Like, I knew you were way too good. That's why I didn't want you to come here, because I knew that you were going to do a mighty work in me. I, I didn't want to, ugh, it makes me so mad. These sinful people. And he's not unjustified in thinking this even. Because as I was telling you before, this is what the Assyrians did. This is who they were. They killed. They were violent. They were completely oh, separate and away from God. They worshiped false prophets. They worshiped false gods. They were oppressing the Israelites. You guys know that in about a hundred years after this, like after this king dies, a new king comes and he's more wicked than ever. And he actually comes to take over Israel. And Israel is actually in Assyrian captivity. He's like, Lord, like, these people suck. Why do you want to save them? Why do you love them? And the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? <laughs> you guys ever <laughs> let that sink in? Is it right for you to be angry? Says the Lord. Does God ever tell you stuff like that when you pray to Him? You're just like, Lord, why'd you do that? I don't, that doesn't make sense. Like, that person is horrible. You don't know what they did, Lord. You don't know what they did to me. I see them up in church. God, I hate them. I don't like them. They said something to me last week. And now they're up in church praising you. I know they're fake. Is it right for you to be angry? And we go skip to verse 11 from chapter 4. And the Lord says, And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? Like, they don't know. As Jesus prayed for forgiveness, like, they know not what they do. They have no idea what they're doing. They're just doing what their fathers did and what their fathers did and what their fathers did. But you, Jonah, you know. You know me. And you know my mercy. You even said it right here. I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God. 
Like, you know this, Jonah. Is it right for you to be angry? And should I not have concern for these 120,000 people that are on their way to rebellion, that are doing all these sinful and wicked deeds, but, and they don't know. They don't know me. That's why I've called you to come. How many of you guys know that the wicked people that you think of, like the celebrities, they're like, ah, antichrists, all of them, all those celebrities. You actually know, like, that sometimes like famous Christians, like they actually go to them and counsel them and love on them and care for them. And that some of these people actually begin to like start to read their Bible a little bit, like start to know God a little bit. And then we're sitting back here like, no, that's fake. That's fake. That's not real. They can't be loving God. No, that's, that's, all, that's all an image. It's like, who are we? Who are we to be angry about this? Who are we to be judging people? Like, do you not remember where the Lord took you from? Do you not remember where you came from? Do you not remember the depths of your sin and shame? Like, I think sometimes we need to remember these things. Not to be, not to be condemning of ourselves or to, to whack ourselves in the back, but it's just like, man, we've gotten real high and mighty sometimes. We've gotten real up on our high horse at some point. For some reason, we started to look a little bit more like a Pharisee and a little bit less like Christ. At some point, something went wrong with us that we know we just sang for a half hour about the glory of the Lord, and I bet some of us were just like, I can't believe these people are doing these things. Like, I'm, re I'm still remembering what happened on Saturday. Or like, I'm trying to worship, but this person over there, I'm not happy with them. I don't even want to look at them. Lord, pray for you, pray for you. Like, we've missed it. Like, we sing of the glory of the Lord. We proclaim the glory of the Lord. We know God so well. We've read all the books. We've done all the preaching, all the study and all this stuff. We come here every Sunday, and something has to look different eventually. Like, at some point, we have to reflect Jesus. At some point. Come on. Can we get an amen? At some point, we have to reflect Jesus. And not the Jesus that's speaking to the Pharisees when he, when he quotes scripture and, and condemns them. You guys sometimes use those scriptures to condemn the prostitutes. But the Jesus that eats with sinners. The Jesus that loves people that we think don't deserve to be loved. The Jesus that goes and, and takes on a cross. And not just for the Christians, but for the non-Christians too. He died for everybody. He wants, as Peter writes in his letter, for none to be away from him. He made each and every person in his image. And we've been redeemed. And we've been saved. And now he's given us a mission. And so, I'm going to go to the point three. When the found's mission is no longer to find the lost, the found become lost. That this is what happened with the Pharisees. And this is what happened with the Israelites over and over. And this is what happened over and over throughout church history, modern church history, medieval church history, ancient church history. At some point, we get more caught up in our books and in our commentaries, and in our preachings, and our sermons, and we miss the mark. And we miss that the mission is to find the lost. The mission is to love people. And believe me, people are coming. People are coming to the Lord. People are coming to this church and search for something. People are coming to churches throughout Miami and search for something. That God is doing the work. Believe me, God is doing the work. And it would be a shame for us to be in the way. Like, that people are coming to the Lord 
and that we're somehow deterring people from the Lord with our character. That we're too busy trying to be holy and trying to get into our seats and just block out the world and just have me time with God to actually go and like talk to somebody after the service. To actually go and love somebody after the service. To go out and go into your workplaces and actually care for somebody. That this is, this is what it's about. That, that church, Sundays, is really not even about me. It's not about you. It's not about me, personal time with God. That's not actually what it's for. That's for the Saturday through, or so that the Sunday through Saturday. That's what that's for. I pray you guys have an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus because that's where that place is. That's the one-on-one me time with God. This is for the fellowship of the believers, the equipping of the believers for us to meet each other and to encourage each other and to say, okay, yeah, let's go out, let's go out again next week. Let's do this again next week. Let's love on each other again next week. And then we'll go back and we'll report to each other and we'll get edified, we'll get encouraged, we'll get lifted up and then back out, back out into our workplaces, back out into our schools, back out into where we've been called to be. And it doesn't necessarily even look like a lot of different programs. I know a lot of times we think like, oh, okay, I got to go soup kitchen six times next week and and this thing five times next week. It's not entirely like that, though God wants us to do those things. But for the most part, it's us like as we go. You guys know that the, the, the literal Greek translation in the Great Commission is like, as you go, make disciples. That Wherever God has called you, like, that's not a bad thing. Like, that workplace that you're in, that school that you're in, that everything that you're in, the home you're in, the community you're in, the place you're in, you know that you're not here in Miami for a mistake, right? A lot of you are thinking, like, I just can't wait to get out of here and go to the haven of all America, North Carolina. (laughs) That you're here for a reason. That you guys know Miami is the second most unchurched city in America? We are here for a reason. Doral Vineyard is here for a reason. And this means something. I I hate it when I go through those weeks sometimes and I sit here on a Sunday and I'm thinking, what is this even for? What's the point? You guys remember me a couple weeks ago when I did the giving? I said, what's the point of this sometimes? And the point of this is to love God and love people. And I think when we lose that, we become lost. And so in Galatians 1, um, just read through this real quickly. We're going through Galatians in the men's group. You guys should come if if you're a guy. You should come to the men's group. It's an awesome time. In Galatians 1, verse 6 through 7, Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Jonah was too fixated on his own comfortability and his personal safety and his personal identity to see what God was doing and to see what God was trying to use him for. Can you relate to that? That at some point, we miss it. And we get too concerned about our safety, we get too concerned about our 401ks and our IRAs and our pensions, and we get too concerned about these types of things, we get too concerned about our revelation and our personal time with the Lord and we don't allow ourselves to actually go and do this mission that God has called us to. And so I want to talk a little bit about joining the team versus being on the team. I think sometimes we have a, a misinterpretation of this. Um, and basically joining the team versus being on the team basically looks like, um, you know how when you first became a believer or when you weren't a believer and you were coming to church a little bit, 
Like, everyone was like, hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Man, you should come over. We should have coffee. We should have a Bible study together. Oops, sorry, I flipped that. Um, we should do all these things together. And then, like, you finally come to the Lord. And everyone's like, yay! Woo! You came to the Lord. Let's get you baptized. Let's flip this thing over. You guys know this is baptismal, by the way. Um, let's flip this thing over. Let's get you dunked in there. Let's baptize you. Let's go. This is awesome. This is incredible. And then maybe a couple weeks pass by, a couple months pass by, and people stop smiling at you as much. People stop caring about you, it seems, as much. And I think a lot of times that we can get really fixated on that idea, and it's because now you're on the team, that once you actually come to the Lord, that it's no longer just about you. It's about them, that you're on the team now. And that the mission is to get people from out of the team onto the team. And that's why you may see sometimes. For me, that lasted about six months. It was all about me, 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 me. All, I, all the scriptures I read for me, 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 my edification, my growth, my personal stuff. And then at some point, God started to put me in circumstances and places where, okay, you know enough scripture. You know enough about me. You've prayed to me enough. It's about them now. It's not really about you anymore. Even though God is so good to us, and he's so loving to us, and he's caring for us, he's like, but I care for them, and I care about them, and you've been saved, and you have a revelation of my love, and my goodness, and my grace. So now stop trying to keep it to yourself, but let it pour through you. It's not, it's not really about you anymore. I, I, use, I think I used the analogy uh, this week about, you guys remember when LeBron came to the heat? Any Heat fans? Uh, I know like six years ago, y'all all have been like, woo, the Miami Heat! The Miami Heat! We're going to the championship. So when LeBron said, taking my talents to South Beach, everyone was going crazy. People in Cleveland weren't. Everyone was going crazy in Miami. We did everything short of having a championship parade for LeBron and Chris Bosh, and we still got Wade, and we got all these things, and they're on the team. They're on the team now. This is incredible. And you guys remember like, ah, a couple months pass. It's not really that important anymore. Like we need to start seeing you produce for the team. Like it, there's, there's, it loses its novelty that you're just on the team. So it's all about you, 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 you. And now you actually have to start serving the team. Now you actually have to start being a part of the team. You have to immerse yourself in the team's culture and in the team's ways. And that was a bit of a struggle for the Miami Heat in the beginning. Because, you know, for LeBron and Bosh and Wade, it was like, me, 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 me. I'm on the team. I'm on the team. Give us those championship rings, please. And no, like, they had to earn it. They had to start becoming a team. They had to start working together. They had to start doing things together. They had to start fellowshipping together. And this is kind of what it looks like for Christians. That, like, at some point, the celebration can no longer be, yeah, I'm on the team now. And it has to be like, okay, like, what, what can I do for the team? Like, how can I love the team? How can I bring people into this love of the team? I don't know if you guys can remember when you guys were outside the team and were on the team. So how we joined the team. For one, how we joined the team. And two, if you're on the team, how are you serving and loving and caring for the team? How are you giving your life for this team? Because Christ gave his life for that. Christ gave his life for the team. And so I know a lot of times that like, we can get really uncomfortable with that. It's like, you know, I got saved. 
all these great things are happening. And then Pastor Abdi's up here. He's like, you got to serve. You got to give. You got to start to pray. You got to start to read your Bible. Like all these things. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought this was all about me. I don't understand. Why do I have to start doing things now? I don't get it. Like I thought, like all the worship songs, like I thought that was about me and him and that was it. And I stayed at home this week and I just watched a bunch of sermons on YouTube. I didn't come to church. I didn't want to talk to none of y'all. It's all about me, right? It's like, ah, maybe for a little bit. But then at some point, at some point, we have to start being a part of the team. We have to start serving the team. And for some of you, this may be years down the road, months down the road, weeks down the road. And say, like, man, I, I don't really know if I'm serving the team. I thought it was all about me. It's like, I'm here to tell you, it's about the team. It's about all of us. And it's about fellowshipping and loving on each other every Sunday as a team and throughout the week in our small groups. And then going out and saying, hey, like, come be a part of this team. Like, it really is something special. So I'm going to finish up really quick. I'm going to go to Luke 19. And tell this quick story, kind of, this is like what I would say, like the Jesus version of Jonah and Nineveh. So Luke 19, we're going to go through 1 through 10. So Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. You guys remember, in, uh, it's like a July 31st, it's really the summer. Pastor Denville shared this passage. I was actually just thinking about this earlier this week. And he spent like 10 minutes on that passing through. Any of you guys remember that? He's like, I'm just passing through. Nobody remembers? Okay, maybe I just have a good memory. Um, so Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, shout out to the short people up in here, um, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Jesus is very forthcoming. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Nope. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possession to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount got a revelation that he was going to be part of the team. He's like, what can I do for this team now? Like, Lord, like, you love me? You care for me? You, you want to come to my house? You want to dwell with me? All right, well, what can I do? How can I serve you because you've loved me so greatly? And so Jesus said to him, verse 9, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. And verse 10, I want you guys to highlight this, underline it, or take a picture of it. Let this be the anthem. For the Son of Man came to seek, or you can replace that with find, came to find and to save the lost. Jesus is on a lost and found mission. He's coming to find what has been lost and to make it found again, and then to make what has been found to go find the lost again. And so my question for you guys today is, who is your Nineveh? Who is your Zacchaeus? Who is that person that if you actually love them and you care for them and you, and you start to just give life to them, you start to love on them and, and do all these things for them, that people are going to be like, uh, see what she's doing over there? I don't know. I don't know if you should be hanging out with them. Or if you're Jonah and you go to Nineveh, 
And your whole community, all the Israelites are like, ooh, going to Nineveh? I don't know. I don't know. So who is your Nineveh? And who is your Zacchaeus? God loves those who we hate. God loves and cares for those who we, if we're honest, care not too much if they know God. Care not too much if they're on their way to heaven or hell. Like, God loves those people. And he's called us to love them. He's actually given us such a portion of his love. And it's like, man, like, I've really experienced God's love. It's like, yeah, now go and share that with everybody. God is trying to reach the lost. He came to seek and find the lost. And Miami, the second most unchurched city in America, God's trying to reach Miami. God is trying to love and impact and care for and shepherd Miami. I truly believe God can do something incredible. I truly believe that as in the days of Nineveh, that God can do something incredible in Miami. I truly believe that it's like, but Lord, like, you don't know what they did. Like, I was just driving through. I wasn't going into South Beach. I was just driving through South Beach, and I saw what they were doing, Lord. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know if they'll ever come to you. Or like, Lord, like, my family member, like, they do all these things, and they say all these things. I don't know, Lord. Or like my coworker, my classmate, like, they do all these things, and they insult me. They make fun of me because I'm a Christian. I don't know, Lord. It's like the Assyrians were the most pagan, the most violent, the most aggressive, and the most ungodly people in that area. And God used one man to go to them. And so I truly believe that we have all called, we're all called to be a Jonah in our city. That we're all called to be a Jonah in our communities, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools that God has called us to this, that he's equipped us to this, that he has saved us, redeemed us, he's found us. And so now we have to go. And so this is that last point that is just like all of it into one sentence, that the lost have become found to find the lost. And that's really all it's about. That's all we're here for. That's all this mission is. If we were just to get to heaven and just receive more glory from the Lord and just get more and 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 more of God and just consume all of God and not do anything else with it, then he'd already have us in heaven. But that he's called us to something bigger than just ourselves.